Have you ever really looked at a seed? I mean, really looked at a seed. It's small and seemingly insignificant, but packed into each seed is an almost limitless potential. To reach this potential, it needs to sprout roots. And to sprout roots, it needs to be planted in good soil. In a matter of years, this tiny seed can grow into a giant tree, producing hundreds, if not thousands, of pieces of fruit. Each piece of fruit then contains its own seeds, with their own potential, that can bear more fruit, and so on, and so on, and so on, all from just one seed being planted. So what are you being faithful to plant? How are you investing your energies, abilities, and resources to grow God's kingdom? There is no way to measure how much fruit will come from one seed, but together we can be faithful to plant and watch God produce a vast harvest in our church, in our city, and the world for many years to come. Well, if you're new here to Providence, uh, we uh, love to take time each time that we gather to open up God's Word. And so if you brought one with you, uh, Psalm chapter 90. If you don't have one with you, there should be uh, one in a chair near you. And if you don't have one at home, take that Bible home as a gift. We would love for you to have that. But uh, we'll be in two different places, Psalm 90. And then we'll also be in 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, this sermon, if you've been here before, it's going to feel a little different than when we were in John, where we looked at one passage and we stayed in that one passage until we finished. And then we prayed and then, uh, then we went and had lunch. And uh, it's going to feel different than that, okay? There's going to be several passages to walk through, but there's two that I'm going to have you turn to, and we're going to start in Psalm 90. And so, if you would, uh, let's bow and let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word, we believe that what it says is true, and what it says is that without your Holy Spirit at work in our life, that we won't understand what we're about to read. And so I pray that you would be gracious to us and faithful to your promises to speak to us by your spirit in your word to do good to us as a people. We're grateful and we ask for help and we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, every single one of us um, has a number of days. Um, and life as you know it is brief. Those days, they seem to evaporate, in particular, the older that you get. There's a man named Job uh, who, uh, while, um, while in a really hard place of his life, he was really contemplating how many of his days just seemed to come and go and come and go, and just the speed of the number of days were evaporating in his life. And So he wrote in Job chapter seven, verse six, he says, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and they come to an end without hope. Now you're probably not going to sell very many coffee mugs or t-shirts with that written on it, but there's a lot of truth to what he's saying. If you really understand what those words mean. And most of us, or at least some of us don't know what a weaver's shuttle is. And so let me show you, there's two of them. Okay. One in each hand. It's a It's uh, wood uh, and it's slick and it's easy to pass back and forth. And what it does is it holds the yarn uh, and it lets yarn pour out unencumbered. 
And what Job is saying here when he says, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. He's saying that our days pour out like yarn pours out of a shuttle. And the fact is, is there's no pause button. He says, I have no hope whatsoever that they're not going to come to an end. Every day I wake up, it's one less than I'm going to wake up. And it's interesting how, how, how it really does seem to speed up in time. That, that shuttle seems to move faster and faster the older you get. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but in five months, you and I are going to walk into Walmart, and this is what we're going to see, right? It's coming, right? Christmas is coming. And there comes a time in each one of our lives, like a moment in time, when it's almost like there's a flip and it's switched. And, 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 it's, and, and, and all of a sudden, life becomes different than we once saw it. And instead of looking at life and seeing how long we've lived on the earth, we start thinking about how long we have left to live on the earth. And not only how long we have left, but what are we going to do that matters of significance in the time that we have left? It's true of us individually. It's also true for us as a church family. And so seven months ago, your pastors, elders, myself, we started praying and seeking the Lord, saying, God, what's next? What's next for Providence when our current vision, right, which was to set aside for two years leaders, ministries, and strengthen them, resources, in order to prepare us for the next 20 years? And the fact is, is, uh, is that sure is approaching quickly of when that vision expires. And so we started praying, God, what is next for us as a church family? And it's my joy over the next three Sundays not only to share with you where God is telling us to sail, but to show you how you can personally be a part. And so here in Psalm 90, anytime I'm thinking about future planning in my life, goal setting in my life, I always go to Psalm 90 at least one time. Because Psalm 90 is written by a man who's contemplating the brevity of life. It's written by Moses. And, and Moses is at a place and at a stage of his life when this is written to where he's really tired of people dying. You see, he's led Israel out of Egypt. They've gone, they've almost made it into the promised land, but then they rebelled against God. And so God says, all right, this whole generation is going to wander around in, the wall, in this big desert, this big wilderness, until you all die and your children will be able to go in. But we're going to wait. We're going to wander around out here until you're all dead. Quite a consequence. And it was for Moses as well, because he had to lead him through the sandbox for 40 years. And he was the one who was contemplating every single day. Well, there's another person that died and another person that died. And so the brevity of life literally sat upon his brow when he's writing Psalm 90. And he begins with a prayer and he says this. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. Now, when he compares our brief life to God's, that he's eternal. He's not saying that our life doesn't matter. He's not saying that you're insignificant. What he's saying is that our lives only make sense and they only find significance when we view our lives in the context of God who is eternal. Because on either side of our time on the earth, God is eternal in both directions. He's everlasting in all ways. 
And so if you really think about this, right, it should make you pause. And that's exactly what he does. He tells us to pause. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, he says that the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. He tells us to pause and this is why. What he's saying here is this, is that if you and I were able, we're not, but if we were able to see with unveiled eyes the totality of our number of days on the earth, and at the same time, we were able to see the totality of God's glory and righteousness and perfection and holiness and love and wisdom and compassion and generosity, and we were able to see both of these things, our hearts would be inclined to take our number of years, whether they're 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, and we hand them to the Lord and we say, God, would you order each of my steps? You see, anytime that we start thinking about future planning, goal setting, you and I really should do something first. And that is that anytime we consider our life or what we should be doing, we should stop and start considering what he is doing. And then align our life with what he's doing because what he's doing is going to outlast our life. Every one of us in this room wants to invest our days in something that's going to outlast our days. And this is why he prays at the very end, verse 16 and 17. He says, God, let your work be shown to your servants. You see what he's saying? God, help me to see what you're doing in the world so that I can align my life to you. And around your mission, and in verse 17, let the favor of the Lord, our God, be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So the question that we should be asking before we talk about any vision for what we're going to do in the next three years is what is God doing in the next three years? What has he been doing ever since, ever since time began? What is he doing in the world outside of us? And we should go, let's align our life and our church family to that. And then we'll be assured that what we invest in will last forever, that he will establish the work of our hands. So what's God doing? What's God doing? Well, Psalm Psalm 115 verse 3 says that our God is in the heavens and he does all he pleases. So the simple answer to what he's doing is what makes him happy. That's what he does. And the Bible tells us that what makes him happy... His desire is to display his glory and the fullness of his glory to all the peoples in the face of the earth. We're told in um, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, it says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is his desire, that his glory would literally make an impression upon every single person on the face of the of the earth, that it would fill. Everybody would be aware of who he is. And it's amazing that God created us for this end, that we would enjoy him and enjoy a relationship with him. But the Bible says that very soon thereafter, we sinned and we rebelled against God. And his sin caused a tidal wave of futility and brokenness to sweep over not only our life, but all of humanity. God did something that was unthinkable. And that is that he made a promise to rescue us. Instead of crushing us, he promised a rescuer. 
whom he would crush on our behalf. And then what it says in the Bible, which is pretty amazing, is that he said, and how I'm going to bring this about is going to be something called my mission. This is what I'm about. And what we see throughout the whole Old Testament is the mission of God is simply this. It's to display his glory to all peoples by creating a holy people who enjoy his grace and declare his glory and anticipate his rescuer. And so God came to a man named Abraham and he says, you don't have any kids and you're really old and your wife is barren, but you're going to have kids. You're going to have a son. It's going to be a very important son. And he's going to have kids and they're going to have kids. And there's going to be a nation that's going to come out and you are going to be a holy people among all the people. And you have a job description. This is what I want you to do. I want you to enjoy my grace. Enjoy a relationship with me. I want you to proclaim with your lips and with your lives my glory so that other peoples who don't know me, that they will be able to know me. And I want you to anticipate the day when my rescuer comes to deliver you from sin. And so in the fullness of time, God sent his rescuer. His name was Jesus Christ, his son. And Jesus came from heaven to earth and he lived a perfectly righteous life on the earth. And yet he went to a cross to pay for my sin and your sin. And then he rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, people saw him and believed in him. They trusted his accomplishments. They trusted in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of their sin. And God Almighty, he grouped them together. He collected them together into little peoples called the church. People in this city and in this city and in this city and where they believe. And all of a sudden, what God was doing is he gave the, the church not just a mission. He allowed them to be a part of his mission. What's the mission of every church in the world supposed to be? To display his glory to all peoples by enjoying his grace and declaring his glory and anticipating his rescuer. You see, Providence still today, we're waiting, aren't we? He's coming back again. And when he comes back again, he's going to literally deliver us from this world. And we're going to be able to spend forever with him without the capacity to sin. We can't wait for that day. This is our job description. And every church uses its own unique words in order to describe this mission that aligns with God's mission. And here at Providence, we say it like this. We say we exist to glorify God by introducing all peoples to Jesus Christ and growing them up to love and worship him. If you really look closely at the mission of God and you look closely at this sentence, you'll find the enjoyment of his grace, the proclamation of his glory, and the waiting with anticipation for his rescuer embedded in those words. And then God gives us a strategy. And the strategy in order to fulfill this mission, he says, I just want you to follow me. Not impress me, follow me. See what I'm doing and join me there. So we look around the world and in the Bible and we see Jesus connecting people and growing people, serving people and going to people. And so if we want him to establish the work of our hands, then when we come to you and we say, here's the mission, the vision for the next three years, we're not supposed to be creative with a new mission. The mission and the strategy has already been established and it's in his word. But every few years it isn't. A good thing, it's a helpful thing for a body of believers to envision our next steps to help us to walk together. So over the next few years, you're going to hear this language. It's called plant. 
And the language comes from a little passage, three verses, that Paul wrote in the sixth chapter of Galatians. Let me read it to you. It says, Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And so what you find here is Paul is reminding us of three very important truths, principles, that we should never forget that literally make the foundation of this vision. The first you see from the very top, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Well, from there, we understand that there's a link between the seeds that are planted in the ground and the harvest that comes up. There's a link that between seed and fruit. And every one of us knows this. You plant apples, you get apples, right? You plant love, you don't get bitterness. If you plant bitterness, you don't get unity. If you If you sow seeds in the spirit, you don't reap the flesh, you you reap the spirit. That's what he's saying is there's a there's a link between what we put into the ground and what we're going to be able to see. And the fact is now for 39 years at Providence, there's been seeds planted in the ground, good seeds. And anything that we're now enjoying is not only a cause of God's grace at Providence. It's also because good seed has been planted for so many years that we can look back and we say, you know what? Because we keep teaching the Bible, that's good seed in the ground and it yields a harvest of righteousness. The Providence, if we want to see more harvest, then more good seed has to be put into the ground. And that's what we're talking about, right? Well, the second thing is this, okay? Second thing you see is these words, and let us not grow weary. So what do we learn there? We learn that planting is hard. Right? It's tiring. It's not easy. There's other things that are more enjoyable than planting seeds in the ground. But then the third thing that we learn comes from the last words there, and is in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. What we're talking about here is this. Endurance is always rewarded. But most of the time in spiritual things, it's in ways that you can't quantify. What do I mean by that? Well, if I cut open an apple and I ask you to come up here and count the number of seeds that you find in the apple, it would be um, just mathematical, right? We'd say, well, those are the seeds. Now let's count them up. We could all do that. But what you cannot quantify is how many apples are within those seeds. You plant those seeds, you have no idea how many apples generation after generation of apples and seeds and apples and seeds could actually be seen. So you think about the man who came and spoke here at our last missions festival just a few months ago. Amazing man. So he's from the Middle East and he goes to medical school in San Diego. And there's another college student. He sees him studying biology in the grass and he walks up and he says, hey, do you know who made the body that you're studying? And all of a sudden, he begins to tell him about the Lord, and he shares the gospel with him. And Imad comes to faith in Christ. And instead of becoming a doctor, Imad believes God wants him to go back to a closed country in the Middle East and start an evangelical seminary in order to, 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 to build 
to produce and to train future church planners that can go into these regions with the gospel. Now, 30, some 30 years later, you know, there's over 500 trained church planners that have planted churches in 22 out of the 23 Arab-speaking countries, all of which where it's illegal. And the gospel continues to go forth. Now, do you think that that little kid, I say little kid, that college student in San Diego, who looked over and saw Ahmad studying a biology book, ever could imagine the harvest that would come from opening up his mouth and saying, do you know who made the body that you're studying? There's no way. There's no way. And yet that's what's available to us, Providence. It's an amazing thing. So over the next three years, we want to focus on planting three really good seeds in three really good soils. And that is we want to plant our lives in the church. We want to plant the gospel in our city. And we want to plant churches in the world. In the two coming weeks, I'm going to spend more time talking about, in fact, next week, I'm going to talk about that we want to see 1,000 of us over the next three years lead one person to faith in Christ and then begin to disciple them so that they are confident enough to go and tell someone else the gospel And lead them to lead somebody else who could lead someone else who can lead somebody else. And then the third week, we're going to talk about how can we as a church family plant local churches in places where there is no churches. What you have to understand, though, is this, is that if our lamp is not blazing here at home in our praying and our serving and our worshiping and our singing and our growing and our connecting and our giving, our light will simply not be able to reach very far. And so we want to look just for a little bit here this morning about what it really looks like to plant our lives in the church. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 If you had your finger there, you can turn there. If not, it's near the end of the Bible. First Peter chapter two, starting in verse four, he says this. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So as we just focus our lens upon planting our lives in the church, what I want to show you here is three really important things of why that's such a noble thing for you to do. What you see in this text is really three big truths. The first is that God connects us to his church when we come to Christ. You see verse four, as we come to him, a living stone Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You see, Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the first stone that you put down in your life so that the rest of your 
walls and all your decisions and your actions of your life, everything that makes the house of your life plumb, it has to be built on a cornerstone. And he's saying that for those of us who have seen Jesus Christ and God's given us the gift of faith, he says that he doesn't set up a romantic table for two where we spend the rest of our days with just us and Jesus. He says that he takes another chair and he adds it to an already very populated table and allows you to sit with the whole family. And this is what he's saying. He said he connects us. First thing he does is he has to regenerate us. Because the Bible says that you and I were all dead in our sin. If you've not trusted Christ, what he says is that God pokes you and you're not all that impressed with it. And so God has to move in your heart. And some of you may be here today and think, you know, I'm going to come to church in order to turn over a new leaf. But what the Bible teaches, right, is that turning over a new leaf is not going to get you to heaven. Right? We add nothing to Jesus' accomplishments. He died and he rose from the dead. And he gives his righteousness to everyone who places their faith in him. And so what the Bible says is that when we trust Christ, he regenerates our heart. He gives us a new operating system, a new engine. But that's not all he does. He takes us who, us who each one of us were a, a dead stone. And it says that he makes us a living stone. But then notice what he does with that living stone. He forms them together to create a spiritual house. Now, what's the point here? The point is you're not a house. You're a stone. I'm not a house. I'm a stone. But if we take you and me and a bunch of other stones that have been made alive in Christ and all of a sudden we allow God to move us together, all of a sudden now we become a spiritual house that can actually do things that are pleasing to him. And that's the second thing. Why does he create this house? Well, God forms the church to glorify himself. You see verse 9 and 10? Look what it says. He goes, but you're a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And he says that we're now a people and we've received mercy. And you have to ask this question. Why did he do any of this to you or to me? I mean, why are we chosen? Why are we a new race? Why are we part of a kingly line? Why are we set apart as priests? Why are we God's people? Why do we receive mercy? And the reason, he says, comes after the word that. That's our purpose statement, that, that you may what? Proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into this marvelous light. Providence, listen very carefully. There's a lot of people who make a lot of assumptions about what the church should be doing. The Bible tells us we have one task and that is to say excellent things about Jesus Christ. That's, that's our job description to proclaim the excellencies of the excellent one. Now, how do we do that? And that's the third point, is that God is glorified as his church offers spiritual sacrifices. You see verse five? He says that we, this spiritual house, this holy priesthood, we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what is a spiritual sacrifice? Well, sacrifice implies it's costly. It, you have to pay something. And if you put energy here, you can't put it over here. So it demands a decision of getting one thing and not another. It's a sacrifice. 
But then notice he says it's a spiritual sacrifice. Now, what that means is this, is that these sacrifices, they're costly. What they are, they're acts of faith given in response to what God says pleases him. In other words, he's not asking you and I to be creative in what kind of sacrifices we bring to him. He says, I've already told you exactly what I want. And if you want to know how you say excellent things about me, it's not by ignoring all of these things and standing over here in spite of all of that saying, Jesus is excellent. He says, no, no, no. He goes, if you want to say that I'm excellent, here's how you say that I'm excellent. Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer. When we gather together as a church family, what we're saying is Jesus is excellent. He's excellent. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Do not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. When we gather together as a church family to worship just as you are right now, we're saying excellent things about him. When we gather in life groups, we're saying excellent things about him. First Peter chapter four, verse 10. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. When you use your giftedness to serve the body of Christ, you are saying excellent things about Jesus. Second Corinthians chapter nine, verse seven. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. When you give financially to what he's doing in the world, you are saying Jesus is excellent. His mission is excellent. His glory is excellent. His church is excellent. And for many of us, what we try to do so many times in our life is we say, well, I want to tell him he's excellent on my terms. God says, well, that's just not a spiritual sacrifice. That's called idolatry. God just says, this is how I'm going to be pleased. And if you put your hand at this plow, I will be pleased. And so Providence over the next three years in this area of planting our life in the church, we really want to see two things. Two big categories, right? One is we desire to see our whole body given to prayer. We desire to see our entire body of faith here given over to prayer. You see, God has promised power to those who pray. And the reason this is serious is because the less acquaintance we have with God's power, the more we improvise and then attribute power to our substitutes. We start thinking it's about being charismatic and clever, wealthy. But God does his mission with his power. And if it's not done with his power, it's not done at all. See, well, how are we doing with this? Well, you know, when we, six times a year, we stand up and we plead to the church family, would you come back and pray tonight? Six times a year. And on average, between 250 and 350 people come back. And so you just have to ask this question. Is our lamp blazing? Is the fire in this lamp so hot that it has the capacity to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? The second thing that we really want to see is that we desire to see our whole body engaged in worship, a small group, serving somewhere within the body, and giving. Now listen, whatever help that we, 
health that we enjoy at Providence is due to God's grace alone and God's grace working through the faithfulness of many of you who are already absolutely engaged in all of these ways. And so if this is you, do not hear me saying, do more. Hear me saying, really grateful. Really grateful. And to those who maybe more often than not enjoy watching your brothers and sisters row, I encourage you to grab the oar and help. You see, the church is is like a warship, not a cruise ship. Everybody has a station. Everybody has a place. And if everyone does their job, things move forward. Everybody is called to row. And so when you think about different things of where we're at in terms of giving, in terms of small group attendance, serving, attendance, it's an interesting thing at Providence, to be totally honest with you. There's a lot of you that serve. Just really grateful for that. There's a whole lot of you that also engage in a life group or a small group of some kind. And so we just, we just say, we just commend. It's an amazing thing. We're a little weaker or at least a little bit more shaky. It's a little more puzzling when you look at sort of some of these things when it comes to giving and worship attendance. You say, well, we're here. I, I know, and I'm really glad you're here. Right? It'd be very lonely if you weren't here right now. But the fact is, is as you sort of look at those things, at least I'm told, I, I don't look at this information, but I'm told that within our body, 50% of our body give financially and 50% don't. I'm talking about our members. Okay? And then when you look at attendance, like last Sunday, it was, it was a great Sunday. There was 1,800 people roughly, that came and sat in these seats to worship the Lord. I just say, man, that is an amazing thing, right? If if there's any concern with that, is that if you look at any given month of people who call Providence their home, who are members or who are engaged in a life group, if everybody came all to worship on the same Sunday, I'm not talking about every visitor in Raleigh, like those who were either here last week and are not here this week, like everybody at Providence all came at one time, there would be over 2,500 people. And that would not count any visitors, any children under the age of six, or anybody who's not also involved in a life group. So on any given Sunday, there's seven or 800 people that call Providence their home who don't come. And so I just, you have to ask that question. Is our lamp blazing? Is it blazing? And so for you, I would simply make this appeal. Only you know. And only the Lord can speak to your heart. And I realize that there's reasons and seasons for all of our life. That's why it's between you and the Lord. And I would just ask you, right, just to look and to say, in the next three years, is there any way that perhaps I'm, I'm, I'm not, but I need to lean in and plant my life in the body in any of these ways? And we're just going to trust your relationship with the Lord. That's up to you. Some of you are wondering, is there a card that we're supposed to fill out with this vision? There's not, okay? It's just between you and the Lord. As you give each week, that's that's what we'll use in order to fund this vision, right? It's between you and the Lord. But I want to just encourage you to consider what would it look like? What would it look like for you, if you're not, to engage in some of these ways Being involved in a life group, serving, if maybe you're not doing that. To help you, there's a little video I want to show you now, okay? Watch this.
My name is Joe Pender, and this is my wife, Jennifer Pender. Um, we also have uh, two kids, Joey and Jordan. Jordan is our daughter, uh, 10 years old. Joey is our son, 8 years old. And we've been going to Providence on and off now for about 10 years. We were mainly visiting the church, but we tended to leave uh, leave a little empty. Until recently, we've really tried to plan ourselves and get involved in the church. And it wasn't until about two years later that my wife had a group of friends that kind of helped us go to another step. So I teach exercise, and a bunch of the girls in my class were involved with Providence. And this one girl, Leanne, kept asking me to go to class. And we were very intimidated. Leanne assured us that everything was going to be fine, so we went to um, Next Steps. We went to our first class. It was the most welcoming, most conversational. I never felt so connected with the group so fast. And then what in turn happened is we got our kids really involved. I cannot tell you how much we've learned in this past two years. And in this past two years, I got baptized, Jordan got baptized, and it's been a game changer for our family. The great thing about Providence is it's a big church. Uh, but the intimidating thing about Providence is it's a big church. And for us, until we started making relationships, um, it became more than just a building. And I think it's important um, for, for anyone that's looking into the church, please take the next step. You know, please find a class. Please find a relationship. It starts with one person. And one thing that worked for us was the tent. It's really been a great growth opportunity for the family. Um, we're getting to meet people in the church, and every day that we do it, we become more invested in the church. Everyone wants to feel that connection, and it's that connection to God, it's that connection to your family, it's that connection to your friends, and then that's where that sense of community comes from, and that's what we need here, and that's what Providence provides. So as you think about the truth, right, that everything that we do flows out of everything that we are, right, as a church family, as we think about engaging in the mission that God is in, it's critically important that we first pause, look at our heart and look internally and say, are we as healthy as we need to be? Is the lamp blazing so that the light can go far? You know, one of the gifts that God gives us as a church family to be able to rally together and to remember the most significant thing about us. You notice in that text, but the only thing we all have in common in this room, if, if you know Christ, is that we've received mercy. That's our only commonality. And that mercy came because Jesus died. And he gave us something called the Lord's Supper, which we're going to do right now in order to celebrate that. So the guys that will be serving us, if you want to head to the back and you want to get those items ready, um, God gave us this supper consists of bread and a cup. It's a symbolic of Jesus' body and his blood. And the Bible tells us that we take these things, first of all, as a confession in order to remember what he's done, but it's also a confession to proclaim that we believe what he's done and that we're hoping in what he's done. And so if you have never trusted Christ, we would simply ask that you let these items pass. And maybe after the service, you can even trust Christ. And next time we do this, you can participate. But for those of us in the room who have trusted Christ, this is for you. You're welcome to partake. But the Bible says that first we need to examine our hearts. So as the items are being passed out, I would just encourage you to confess your sin to the Lord so that you can take this with a clear conscience. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Thank you for your grace upon grace upon grace. And we pray, God, that as we remember what you have done and proclaim our faith in what you've done in taking these things, that you would give us encouragement, that you would give us peace, 
that you would comfort our hearts, and God, that you would help us to remember all that we share in common as a body because you've given us mercy. We love you, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.